I'd like for you to turn to the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis. Should be easy to find. 12th chapter of the book of Genesis. And I want to read verses 1 through 3. To the 12th chapter of um, Genesis we go. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The first time that we see Abram, Abraham, is in the 11th chapter of the book of Genesis, and he lives down in southern Mesopotamia. He lives in a pagan environment. I think that we probably um, have failed to realize that Abram was pagan, really, and practiced pagan religion. Shortly after we discover him in the 11th chapter, he moves with his clan up to Haran, and there the most significant thing that occurs to him occurs there. God encounters him. And God makes him some promises. He promises that he will have a land he can call his own. He promises that his descendants will be more plentiful than the sand of the seashore and more glorious than the stars. He promises that his name will resonate down through the ages. And he promises that through him shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And he has only to do one thing. The one thing is, is that he is to get up and begin a journey that God will direct step by step, and the Lord will provide. And that assurance became the foundation of the whole enterprise. And we find out that Abram got up and obeyed the beckoning of the Lord without question or quarrel, and he began a journey that he never finished. Now there are many lessons to be learned from anybody's life, especially from heroes of the Bible. And there are many lessons to be learned from Abraham, sermons to be preached and have been preached by better preachers than the one preaching this one. But I have chosen four lessons this morning that I feel fits the environment in, in which I live at this present time, both geographically and emotionally and spiritually. First lesson is this. God never intends for us to stay where we are all the time. He never intends for us to stay the way we are all the time. And so God came to Abraham Instead of giving him something to hang on to or some anchor that would remain steady through all change and time, 
He instead gave him a call to adventure, and he told him to get up from there and move on to something else, something different, something better. And he promised this, that he would provide. And so there is no nesting in and there is no settling down with this God. He's always on the move. And it seems to be the essence of his reality, that dynamic. As a matter of fact, a man by the name of Jürgen Bultmann points to this dynamic God and to this dynamic nature And he points to that as the distinguishing feature of the Christian religion, he says. For in the pagan religions that he calls the epiphany religions, he says they attempt to bring um, uh, order out of chaos and they attempt to bring some kind of stability in time and space, totally opposite of what he calls the Exodus religion of Abraham that does not see movement and change as enemies to be um, resisted, but as ways that God works and ways that God calls us to fulfillment of His purpose. And he says that security in in this religion, the Exodus religion of Abraham, is not found in sitting down and having possessions and remaining static. But the security is always that it's a goal, moving toward a goal that is always out before us and never yet realized. And he says, quote, that the symbol of the religion is a hoisted flag instead of a, an anchor. And the goal of the Christian religion is to always be moving toward an object that is out there in the future, not yet realized. In other words, what he's saying is this is that God doesn't want us to settle down and remain the same. For change and becoming and moving is not just, um, is not something to be desired, uh, to to be resisted. It is what God mandates for any of us. For if you sign on, to to be a Christian, you sign on to change. He's out to change you. And His desire is to make you like His Son. And He will not stop until He gets the job done. And that change does not occur automatically. There's always resistance. Anything you ever attempt in life that's significant will be met with adversity Some folks will oppose you, some will criticize you, some will discourage you. Adversity is a part of what it means to live as a Christian. Even in the secular world, that's that's true. Rumor has it that Walt Disney, before he would ever try one of these creative ideas that came into his mind, he would pass it before at least ten people. And if he got ten people who were unanimous in, in disagreement of him, He would start to work immediately because he felt that if there is that much adversity, it must mean that he's on to something great. And there is always adversity and difficulty and envy and resistance that comes when a person is told you need to get up from where you are as a Christian, as a believer, and you need to go beyond this. You can't remain the same. 
second lesson is that a, a, a Christian is a pilgrim that is progressing. He is struggling toward something better. And that's the best description of a Christian. John Bunyan caught the, the meaning of that in his marvelous book, Pilgrim's Progress. Written over 300 years ago, that one book, as, along with the Bible, has shaped the face of Christian religion uh, there was a time in England when there were three books, Fox's Book of Martyrs, John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, and the Bible. I don't know if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress or not, but I believe that it may picture, better than any other book, the essence of the Christian way. And it tells us what to expect, those of us who have decided that we would follow Jesus and the way. And a part of the clue of that book is in the title, Pilgrims, Pilgrim Progressing. For in those two words is the subtle blending of what makes up the essence of the Christian religion, hope and struggle. It is not struggle without hope, that would be fatalism. It is not hope without struggle, that would be a fairyland of fantasy. It is both of these two things blended together in life so that a Christian is always in the process of struggling, moving to something else, something better. And on the road of following Jesus, there is the struggle and the difficulty. There is the hope and the struggle. And so you have this hero with a, with a pack on his back, and he's on the way somewhere. And he, all, he encounters all these difficult circumstances. He's not translated from what Bunyan calls the city of destruction to the celestial city. He, 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 there's 300 pages of a man struggling. He meets all kinds of people. He, he spends some time in the hole of despond. He gets lost in bypass meadow and he spends a little time in Doubting Castle and Vanity Fair, and he meets all these folks that are main characters or characters in this story. Do you remember them? In the city of Fair Speech, there's Mr. Byens. He's this character that says, the folks in this town are a little different. We always, we, 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 we always travel with the wind to our backs. And we want to go with religion as long as religion wears a silver slipper, you know. And he meets pliant and ignorance, and he meets uh, Mr. Facing both ways. And, and he's not on an escalator that moves upward. He falls, and he gets up again, and he falls, and he gets up again. And he's always losing his way, and then always finding his way. And he struggles along, does this pilgrim in this pilgrim's progress. Because the essence of the Christian life is that for us. I wish I had read that book when I first became a Christian. Now, I know it wasn't anybody's fault but my own, but I, I, I think I thought when I became a Christian, I heard such cliches as Christ is the answer. That, when I heard that, I, I, I didn't hear that, that he would be a companion, a gracious, loving companion who would join me in the struggles of life. I think what I heard was that he would just automatically deliver me from all struggles. And I, I kind of thought, I, I thought that when I became a Christian, all the problems would disappear. And, 
and, and I know it wasn't anybody's fault but my own, but I think somebody kind of overpromised me something. Kind of like when you used to, when you was a kid, you remember when you used to send off of these mail order things, you know. You'd hear on the radio or something, you know, six box tops and 25 cents, and you'd get one of these things when it came in the mail. I mean, it's just a, what a disappointment. I remember when I was about the grade, my Sunday school teacher told me, said, if you memorize, everybody that memorizes all the books in the Bible and all these verses of Scripture, she said, I'll give them a valuable prize. Now, what, I, what you hear is what you want to hear, right? And so I heard a bicycle. <laughs> now, now all, all, my, all my friends had a bicycle, but, but I, you know, I grew up in kind of a tough, you know, my parents weren't that prosperous, so I didn't have a bicycle. But what I heard was, memorize these verses, memorize the books of the Bible, and a shiny new bicycle will be delivered to your door. Now, what I got was a bookmark with the with with library of the books of the Bible on it. Let me tell you something. That's not exactly a bicycle. You know, it's, it's not what I hoped for, what I wanted. I, somebody overpromised me and I overheard, you know, I guess you'd call it. What I'm hearing now is this. What I'm understanding now is this. Is it doesn't matter how close you are to God, how faithful you've been to Him. He doesn't snatch you out of the struggles. And all the way from this end to that end, we encounter these trials that come in life and the struggles that through which we must pass. You know, have you ever opened the Bible and you thought somebody changed, somebody slipped in during the night and changed some verses? That happened to me. Let me read you a verse of Scripture that it seems like somebody changed on me. It's the first, it's the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians, verse 13. Listen to it. You don't have to turn. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God, who is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond that you're able. Now, what we hear when we read that is this, is that when it gets tough enough, when it gets bad enough, God will come swooping in on, you know, on a helicopter in the box canyon where you find yourself and snatch you out of the problems. That's not what he says. Listen. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape. That's where we get the idea that on some white night he's going to ride in and deliver us. You didn't read the rest of it. The rest of it is this. That you may be able to endure it. And the way of escape is not deliverance from it. It's the courage and the power and the strength to endure it. And I'm telling you, there are some people that I know and you know who are having to endure unbearable sorrow. For on the way to the celestial city, there are these struggles. There are these tracks along the way of a pilgrim who's been there with us, before us. 
Lesson number three. You don't have to be perfect for God to use you. You don't have to be perfect for God. Perfection is not a prerequisite. What you learn from the story of Abraham is that God comes, meets you where you are, patiently leads you to where He wants you to be. And that perfection rightfully belongs at the end and not at the beginning or even the middle of the process. But what you discover in the saga of Abraham is this man who did these tremendous heroic deeds of faith and trust, to be sure, but he was in no way perfect or complete. I mean, this guy failed time and time again. He fell like the lady who saw the monks come down from the monastery in the, the top of the mountain down to the little village store. She walked up to one of them one day and said, Sir, I hate to, you know, I hope I'm not imposing. I hope I'm not asking a question I shouldn't ask, but what do you people do up there in that monastery? And the monk looked at the lady and said, We fall down and we get up. We fall down and we get up. We fall down and we get up. So here is Abraham, and he falls down. And it's evident from the story that you don't have to be perfect to be chosen in a magnificent enterprise where God uses you. Let me tell you what he did, remind you what he did. A famine came in Israel. He forgot all about the fact that God had promised all these provisions, so he hightails it down to Egypt. Where, where food is more plentiful. And on the way down there, he makes this awful request of his wife. This is his request in the Knox County colloquialism. He says, honey, I hear that old Pharaoh is a ladies' man. And if he takes a shine to you, darling, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll tell him that you're my sister. Because... I have a real fondness for my hide, and I'd like to save it. Strange and awful request, not an expected request from a person you would say was the hero, spiritual hero of the Old Testament. You wouldn't expect him, would you? What a selfish, self-centered, horrible thing. This guy is no saint. He's no perfect individual. Hallelujah. It means that you don't have to be perfect for God to use you. That perfection is the goal for which we strive. It is the norm by which we measure our progress, but it is not realistic to think you will ever achieve it in this life. Interesting that when Jesus said, Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, that the phrase there, the imperfect tense of the phrase, be ye perfect, and the future tense of the phrase, ye shall be perfect, are, are spelled exactly alike. Perhaps if the future tense had been translated into Scripture, that is, as a glorious promise, you shall be perfect, 
it would be more clearly like biblical religion than the other is. You understand what I'm saying? Maybe he meant that. And I was looking through researching this sermon, and I did, believe it or not, do some research. I happened on a statement written by a man by the name of Fuller called The Philosophy of History. Now, this is so deep, I need to read it. This is what it says. It is the goal that shapes the journey. The end is where we start from. The end has far greater, is, has far greater shaping over our lives than the beginning. That which we are made for is more significant in our development than the biology of our making. Listen to this statement. The Arist in Aristotle's philosophical analysis of causes, it is not the first cause, parentheses, the kick that gets us going, but the final cause, the lure that pulls us to the finish that is uniquely and ultimately decisive. For humans, the future is the most creative and the most essential aspect of time. Human life is that paradoxical reality which consists in deciding what we are going to do, therefore, in being what we not yet are, in starting to, to be the future. Told you it was hard to live in this. The conditions of our beginnings, and then several hundred pages cultivate, culti uh, cultivating in us a taste for the future, immersing us in a narrative in which the future is always impinging on the present, so that we live out of our beginnings and by the means that are in accordance with the reality of our ends, not only as a child, an adolescent, but also as an adult, quote, what I want to be when I grow up has far more influence on what I say and do and become than the genetic code I receive at, at my conception. Why a thought. Now what he's saying is this, is the thing that lures me, the thing that drives me, the thing that motivates me is what I'm going to be and what I'm going to become and what I want. For perfection belongs at the end of the journey, not at the beginning. Hallelujah. One last thought. Life is a gift, and every particle of it. And so Gerhard von Rod says that when Abraham was told by God to take his son and place him on an altar, he was not digressing to, into paganism from which Abraham had come. Rather, he was help, trying to see if Abram had gotten the point all these years. 
of walking around the country receiving from God unmerited gifts. Oh, listen to this. He said nothing that Abram had was really his. The name that would resonate through history, the land he would call his own, the inheritance that would be plenteous and glorious, and the blessing, all of it was unmerited. And he was putting Abram to the test. Abraham, do you believe that there are some things that you can keep for your own treasure up, preserve, possess? And when Abraham offered up everything he had, his son Isaac, to the God who had given everything to Abraham, he proved that he understood the great object of history, the great object of life, and that is the understanding that everything we have belongs to Him. And when I understand that, it saves me from possessiveness and a spirit of entitlements. I'm, I'm entitled to this. And it allows me to receive with gratitude the things I have in life, hold them loosely, and it keeps me when I have to give up treasured objects and treasured persons like young children, it keeps me from being bitter or resentful. For I understand that there is nothing that is really mine. And so John Claypool says that when he was a kid, some, some friends came one day with a Bendix washer. So they didn't have a, a washer, washing machine. And they hauled this Bendix washing machine up to their house, and this guy was going to go off to the service, and he was going to let them use it. He thought, that is, Claypool thought that they were, he was giving it to him, but they were going to let him use it. And so he said they put this Bendix washer down in the basement. It was so handy. They could just walk down there and throw the dirty clothes in there. Easy to do, isn't it, women? Isn't it, mothers? I mean, all you got to do is just toss a little in the washer. That's a joke. Sarcasm. <laughs> That's sarcasm, the most brutal form of humor. <laughs> and, and he said, we use, this, we use this Bendix washer for this long time. I got used to it. He said, one day I came home from school and it was gone. And he said, I asked mother, I said, where's the washing machine? And he said, well, they came and got it. Who came and got it? Well, the folks that, you know, the Smiths, they came and got it. And he said, I was, I was, I was angry about that. They came and got our washing machine. And he said, my mother set me down and said, now, now John, one of the things about you're going to have to learn in life is, is that there's some things that you have just, use for why that we belong to you. and so when John's Claypool's 12 year old daughter was burning up with fever and dying of leukemia he said I brought her in my prayer to God and said I know she doesn't really belong to me.
we have so been so blessed to have had her for a while. But she really belongs to you. My dad, when I was a seventh grader, had a heart attack in church. Some of you are going to have a heart attack that's not over in here pretty soon. But he, he was sitting kind of like over there, about like this in the little church where I was. Grew up. And he, he had this massive heart attack. And they carried him out. And we went to the hospital. And that afternoon I went, I lived way out in the country, and I went to do the chores. Dad was in the hospital. And I can remember as a kid not understanding that at all. And just devastating. And I was back on the back side of our place getting in the cows, you know, bringing them in. And I remember thinking, I don't know if I can endure his death or not. True story. I remembered in my heart praying this prayer. Because I was a Christian and my parents taught me, brought me up in church. I remember praying this prayer. Lord, I know that you're the one in control. And I want to tell you now in this way that I'll accept whatever you decide. And I can remember a sense of overwhelming peace come over me. Walking down that little cow trail, bringing those cows to the house. For life and every particle in it is His. And as we struggle as fellow strugglers, it helps us to know that. Let's pray together. Our Father, my prayer is now that in the quietness of this moment, what we understand from your word, you'd help us to know what you want for us, from us and what you want for us. And that we'd have the courage and the will to respond positively without question, without argument. For I pray in Jesus' name. Now, there might be somebody here this morning who would like to begin the journey with a pack on your back. You begin to follow Christ. I believe the best description of what it means to Accept Christ is to begin to follow Jesus. Just get up and say, with faith, I trust, I'm going to begin to follow Christ. Here's my life. I'm going to begin to give it. I'm going to begin to give it to Him to become what I am to become. Or maybe you need to come in the journey God has led you to this place to join this church. It's part of the plan God has for your life. So you want to do that now. You miss out on a week of the plan or whatever God leads you to do, while we stand to sing, we invite you to come.